This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Sockett, and joining me today is Blaze Thompson, an instrumental technologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm excited to have Blaze in the show today because he sort of dips into an area of research software engineering that is less commonly seen, and that is working on instruments and hardware for research. So first, Blaze, welcome to RSC Stories. Thank you, Vanessa. So before we jump into your role, let's start with your story. Can you tell us about some of your background and how you wound up where you are today? Yeah, so college, I got an undergraduate degree in chemistry, and I went on to do a PhD, the same institution I'm at now, UW-Madison. You know, chemists have this really wonderful tradition of analytical chemistry, which is people who are really developing their own instrumentation within the field of chemistry to accomplish experiments that aren't available to them through existing techniques. And that's really what I fell in love with, with chemistry. I did my PhD in an optics lab, did a lot of laser science. And then at the end of my PhD, the department was reorganizing the electronics shop, which is this longstanding institution in the department that had some employees who were about to retire and the space was going to get renovated. And the hiring committee decided they wanted to take it in a new direction because their existing electronic support wasn't really satisfying them. So they wanted someone with a little bit more of a scientific background, and they actually ended up hiring me for that position. So I got to transition from graduate student to a staff person in that same department. That was about two years ago, and that's where I am now. I'm glad that you mentioned the electronics shop because I did see it, that your institution has this chemistry electronics shop, and I'm not sure that I've ever seen something like that at another institution. Can you maybe tell us what goes on on a high level in the shop and if you know that other universities have something similar? Yeah, we've had electronics shop for a long time. As far as I know, since the beginning of the department, we actually have three research serving shops in our department. We have a glass shop, which employs a scientific glass blower, a machine shop that I work very closely with, where they make precision parts out of metal and plastic, ceramics, other components, and then the electronics shop, which both focuses on keeping existing instrumentation running, but also creating novel instrumentation for the department. Maybe it's just because I know a lot of people who have similar roles as I do, but in my experience, actually a lot of institutions do have these research-serving shops. A lot of times they are more associated with the physics department, or they might be campus-wide. It's something that's in decline a little bit, and I think we have this opportunity to reimagine what these shops provide to institutions as we get a new generation of staff into them. But yeah, it's definitely a thing across the United States, at least. That's interesting. Why do you think that these particular kinds of shops are in decline? 30 years ago, when I was a baby, my understanding is that a lot of instrumentation needed to be made in-house because there weren't any commercial vendors, any companies that were making optics, 
specialty scientific instrumentation at all. Actually, if I look back in the logs of the shop that I'm now running, 30 years ago, we had seven people on staff and we had scientists from the department coming in all the time requesting us to design and build things from scratch that I would never make today because they're just available for purchase and they're much higher quality and much cheaper than I could ever make. As companies took over those specialties, I think institutions needed the shops less and less. But now I think the challenge as we look forward is that even with all of these components readily available to scientists, it's still really hard, especially for scientists at the beginning of their careers, graduate students, to know what to purchase, how to put it together, how to do the work of integrating different pieces of scientific equipment together so that they can work in concert to form an actual instrument to actually do an experiment. So it's more about integration nowadays. You know, when you're a student and you're going to graduate and start your first staff role or job, it's often kind of scary because life is sort of fundamentally different <laughs> as like a grad student. And then, you know, one of those real working people. So how was that transition for you? It was very stressful. I really enjoyed the work that I did in grad school, and I thought it was very important work because I could see that I was enabling all of these experiments. But then looking out into the wider world, you know, I, I couldn't easily imagine a place for myself. I eventually realized that there was this class of person who was doing research support, and I initially imagined myself being like a staff scientist or maybe working at some sort of facility that had people on staff that were maintaining or creating custom instrumentation. I didn't find many positions that I really fell in love with. There were a few. But I feel like I was really very lucky for the timing to work out so well for me to move into my current role. I'm pretty happy with where I am for the moment. So I want to sort of understand what it's like sort of a day in the life of an instrumentation technologist. And I'm interested how you think of your role in terms of do you consider yourself a kind of research <laughs> software engineer? Is there overlap? Is there a space for you in the USRC community? How do these things interact? So this might be a little bit of an aside, but I think it might just be interesting context. And that's like the funding model and kind of what I am there for, what my job is on paper. The shop is subsidized by the department, meaning that overhead from grants plays my salary. And then we have kind of like a independent internal budget model. I'm not responsible for making up my own salary, but I am responsible for making a little bit of money. And I do that by maintaining an inventory of parts. So I have thousands of different parts that people can come and purchase from me and they have a markup. And then the other thing we do is people come to me with jobs. They submit them mostly by email these days before they would just walk through the door. And I design and construct circuits or instruments, all kinds of levels of different jobs. And I build them out at $7 an hour. And that gives me a little bit of income that I can use to buy my own equipment, to pay student workers, those types of things. So that's kind of how the shop works as an institution in the department. 
In terms of how much time I spend working on software, I feel strongly that software needs to have a greater piece of the pie in the way that I assist my customers. I think that as more and more hardware is available for purchase, even hardware that's not available for purchase, you can buy components of it and kind of wire them together or design something pretty quickly nowadays. We have this huge tool chain available to us. The software integration becomes more and more the main barrier to actually doing an experiment. So I'm really passionate about trying to make software for data collection and orchestration better. And I'd say I spend about 20% of my time on trying to advance that in whatever ways that I can. So I, I do quite a bit of software as well as the hardware work. So do you consider yourself, if someone came up to you and said, hey, Blaze, are you a research software engineer? Would you say yes? Or would you say, well, I sort of? I don't think I would be bold enough to call myself a research software engineer. I don't have fundamental training in software. And the software that I make is often very humble, you know, it's just how do we take these pieces and make them into something that has a user interface? You can orchestrate the hardware and save some data. But I certainly think a lot about software, and I think it's, it's a very important piece of the research enterprise. If you strongly in your heart feel like you're an RSC, I wouldn't worry about not having training. No, honestly, a lot of us, most of us, I actually, I don't have a number, so I can't say most of us, but a lot of us don't have training. And that's okay because you have to have expertise in other sorts of domain science, and in your case, hardware. That would be a lot of PhDs to get. Yes. You know, we just don't have that much time. So when you found USRSC, well, how did you find it? And then when you did find it, have you found others like yourself? I'm pretty sure I found it through this podcast. I love listening to podcasts, although I might have heard it through someone at SciPy, which is a conference that I have attended several times and I really enjoy. On the Slack channel, there's an instrumentation channel now. So surprisingly, there are some other people who are working at the software hardware interface in the organization, which I'm excited to see. I wouldn't say I've found a huge amount of camaraderie, but I have a pretty weird job. <laughs> Is there anything that we can do as a community to better support instrumentation work? I think instrumentation is fundamentally challenging to develop, you know, open source communities around because there are concrete truths about the idiosyncrasies of hardware that make it really challenging to like get together, make an open source solution and just have it take off and be used everywhere. I think just continuing to grow and hopefully there can be enough momentum that a few hardware people who think the same way that I do can find each other. So you said one of my favorite things, you mentioned open source, and I'm interested how hardware development relates to open source. And maybe if you want to give us an example or something along those lines. 
So first of all, there is formal open source hardware. So there's an organization, and I've never done this, I'd love to, that can certify hardware as open source. And there are people who try, if you make a circuit or a mechanical component or something, you can share the source materials that define that piece of hardware and make that open source. That's totally a thing that happens but for me, when I think about open source, I am more thinking about communities that are trying to build tooling for orchestrating hardware. And that's pure software work and is open source in the same sense that any other software is. My favorite, if you want to name drop a piece of software, is Blue Sky, which is a Python project that's kind of the core of a community of people who are actually trying to build interoperable tools, which I'm really excited about. Most of them are employees of national labs, synchrotrons, those kinds of places where they have really complicated, hard orchestration problems. So you mentioned Python. Mm -hmm. What languages sort of tend to be the developer's choice if you develop hardware? I do as much as I can in Python personally. C-like languages are often what you end up using for firmware, which is another thing that I spend a lot of time doing, you know, actually developing the code that will then live in the brains of a microcontroller. I really enjoy using this new project, MicroPython, as well. So I'm the kind of crazy person that is trying to use Python syntax even in microcontroller land. And then the other huge one is this crazy kind of graphical programming environment, LabVIEW, that a lot of people use to develop their orchestration software. And that's a proprietary National Instruments product. National Instruments is a big company that makes a lot of hardware that scientists like to use. The last time we chat, you were thinking about putting together sort of a small collection of software specific to your domain to share with others. Do you want to tell us about this effort? Have you been able to create such a resource? <laughs> All I have so far is a bunch of emails to myself with GitHub links in them, which is not very shareable. <laughs> I've fallen in love with Python for my orchestration work, and I just keep discovering these projects that are like Python instrument orchestration, like monolithic softwares that are trying to do that work. And each of them has two to 50 people working on it. And none of them are using each other's work, you know, even though there's a lot of deep similarities, you know, there's a lot of reinventing the wheel. So my dream is to make a website that hopefully other people would know about and use that would just at least list all these existing projects and perhaps even better try to somehow organize the features that all these projects are trying to create so that maybe we could start building on top of some shared technologies, you know, maybe some libraries that 
try to solve tiny little problems that we could actually use across each other's projects rather than inventing the whole thing by ourselves. Because going from nothing to full orchestration with the communication, with the instrument, the graphical user interface, the data recording and the data processing, it's a lot to do by yourself. Unfortunately, a lot of people still are doing it by themselves. Yeah, I definitely feel like that's a common problem in research that you say, okay, I need this sort of tool, but then because there's a lot of different labs and, you know, it's hard to find things, you can't really find something and then you build your own and then there's 15 yes. versions of the same thing that nobody yes. knows about. It's depressing. It seems like you have to get huge to get over the barrier of occurring to someone in that crucial moment before they start building something themselves. People don't have the habit of searching. And I myself am very guilty of this. I invented this crazy complicated data processing package as a graduate student that I should not have invented myself. I get the position that these people are in. It's a coordination problem. I'm definitely of that phenotype where I get excited to build something and then just jump in and build it and mm -hmm. look back in retrospect and say, mm -hmm. oh dear, mm -hmm. that should not have happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when you think of your future, whether that's in like the next five years, 10 years, how do you hope to grow? I hope to grow through more collaboration. I want to do a better job of building good technologies in public or helping existing projects that are building things that are useful and then turning around and helping my customers use those technologies to you know, speed up or catalyze or enable their research. Sounds like a good plan. <laughs> so we're coming up so. on time and I have just a few more questions. Coming from someone that has never been to Wisconsin, what is it like <laughs> to live in Wisconsin? Oh, Wisconsin is amazing. I really like it here. It has a really unique culture. If you ever pass by, my recommendation is to make sure you attend a supper club, which is a uniquely Wisconsin dining experience. I, I got to ask you about that. What, what exactly <laughs> is a supper club? A supper club is, I don't, how do I even describe it? On the surface, it's just a restaurant, but there are also these community centers and they serve very Wisconsin food, you know, simple preparations of meat, special Wisconsin cocktails and alcohol. Wisconsin is very much a fan of alcohol and yeah, they're just unique local hangouts. That's my best way to describe them. That's really neat. For some reason, I was thinking that a supper club is like a group of people that get together and have dinner <laughs> like over something or something. You know, it but... kind of is. It has that feel, even though they are businesses and they are only open for supper. And a lot of times they're only open in the summer, which is kind of an interesting thing. Okay, last question. So when you're not in the shop and you're not building something, what else do you like to do in your free time? My absolute favorite social activity is folk dancing. It's another cool thing about Wisconsin is we have an excellent live music scene, a lot of talented folk musicians. And in non-COVID times here in Madison, you can go folk dancing every week to live music for very cheap. It's very fun.
Awesome. So Blaze, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. And I kind of hope that someday maybe you can give a talk or share a short mm -hmm. tutorial with USRC to kind of really share the work that you do, because I do think it's a little underrepresented. And if more people were just aware of it, you'd probably find a lot of people are interested in doing the work. Maybe that could be like 2021 or two, if that's too soon, 2022 goal, just to kind of move toward sharing. Something. Yeah. Hey, if anyone out there is listening to this and they are in a shop, there's a really cool organization as well. The Student Shop Managers Consortium, SSMC. Look them up and we could chat over there as well. But nobody over there is doing software, so I'm stuck in the middle. <laughs> Yes, and if anyone is interested in this kind of work and whether or not you are already a member of USRC, you should join and join the instrumentation channel and start a conversation and just have some fun. So thank you again, Blaze, so much. Thank you, Vanessa.